We're going to start chapter 10 in our study of uh, 1 Samuel. Uh, let's just do a real quick reminder here um, of the previous couple of chapters. The, the children of Israel have insisted that God give them a king. We looked at Deuteronomy 17 and asked and answered the question, was that God's will for them? Eventually, yes, the answer is. And then Samuel went through all of the costs that it will be for the children of Israel to have a king. And then uh, we read last week, right at the end, that God revealed to Samuel that Saul would be the one whom he would be, uh, who would be crowned as king. And so the last part of verse 27 at the end of chapter 9, I will look at that again. This is Saul hearing from Samuel, in other words, Samuel talking to him. Tell the servant to pass I before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Now, that when the word of God isn't something that's written, he is now, that is Samuel, is now going to proclaim to Saul what God's word is. Because remember, one of the roles of Samuel is a prophet. He's a prophet, he's a priest, he's a judge. We've talked about that earlier. So what he does, notice the very first word of verse 1 of chapter 10, then Samuel. So following immediately with that declaration to make known to you the word of God, then Samuel took a flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him, and said, Has not God anointed you to be the prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord. And you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. Now, let me stop there before we, we, we look at the next part. This is a private anointing. This is not public. Uh, if you read with me that previous verse, Samuel made it very clear there was no one else around, even sent the servants up ahead. So this is a private anointing of Saul. This, it's, it's hard to know exactly from the text whether this is a shock to Saul or not. But it seems that it is because of what follows. But I want you to notice two things. Number one, Samuel takes the flask of oil and pours it on his head. That oil would be olive oil. That would be a very traditional, ancient, Near Eastern way of anointing someone to be the king. It's occurred in other nations as well. It's very much a part of Israel. The second thing I want you to notice is he kissed him. That is a bit unusual especially in, in Israel at this time. But it is, it is a kiss of affirmation, a kiss of, a kiss of approval. And then Samuel and Samuel are speaking for the Lord. The Lord, and notice the Lord, there is Yahweh, it's in capitals. The Lord has anointed you. In other words, I am the agent of God anointing you to be the prince. And it's, it's interesting that the term is prince because it's a choice that specifically is a reminder of something. Who is the real king? God is. God's the real king. So Saul is like his theocratic steward under him. And so Samuel chooses to use not the term king, but use the term which is melech in Hebrew. But he chooses to use the term prince. Which is that's really an important distinction to make at this point in Israel's history. The theocracy still is operative; God is still ruling, but now He will rule through a prince, a theocratic steward of His. 
And I want you to notice something else about the middle of verse 1. There is the clear purpose for Saul. His rule as the prince is to save Israel from the hand of the surrounding enemies. And who is the primary enemy of Israel at this time? The Philistines. And you will see this throughout his uh, reign. Uh, he reigns for a total of four years, actually. But his reign is primarily dealing with the Philistines. And he's not going to, at first, he's going to be successful. But as you know, at the end, he will actually be killed by the Philistine army. I should see he will actually commit suicide. He'll be wounded mortally by the, the, on Mount Gilboa by the Philistines. So we see the anointing. It is private. We see the title, he's a prince, and we see, see the purpose statement of his rule. And it's really interesting because it's not to bring spiritual reform. It's not to bring any kind of governmental reform. It's not to unify the tribes. It's to deal with the enemies of Israel. And that's what he'll do. Then he says, uh, this is still Samuel speaking, uh, finishing now verse 1. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince, there's that word again, over his heritage. I want to stop there for a minute. Because this, the language that's being used here is quite instructive. Because the, the pronoun his is referring to God. So you are being anointed to be the prince over his, i.e. God's heritage. And that's, and it isn't the only time, but it's an unusual way for God to refer to his people. Israel is, are the, the people of Israel are the covenant people of God. But the Bible, the Psalms particularly develop this idea. The people of Israel are God's heritage. Isn't that, isn't that an unusual way to talk about the covenant people of God, God's heritage. Because you you and I usually think of heritage as, because uh, we get the word inheritance from that, but it's it's something that's part of your legacy, it's something that's part of, of what happens to you when you pass from the scene, or, or what you want to leave. So it's just God, it's, a, it's another affirmation of how special the people of Israel are to God. Let me fast forward to the New Testament, because that same language is going to be used of Jesus, and the heritage of Jesus is the church. So that same idea is carried into the New Testament, but obviously with a, a different different context, where the heritage is not the covenant people of, of, of Israel, it's the church. So it's just an interesting way in which God looks at his people. They are his legacy. And they are. They they have they have a a very important stewardship role, and that of course takes you back to the covenant God made with Abraham. Uh, in and through them, He will be blessing the world, and that of course is a blessing of salvation. All right, you got that? I spent a lot of time on verse one, but there's just a lot in that verse that's quite important. But key in now with me at the end of verse one on that term sign. And it's, it's fascinating that Samuel says this, again, speaking for God. God's going to give you a sign, Saul, that this is what he wants you to do. 
As a matter of fact, as we go through these next verses in this long paragraph, there are three signs. Why does God do that? Just a question. I mean, you know, it's like God said it, he's declared it, that's it, it's settled. He gives people confidence. Good. To increase the confidence. He gives us signs, so to speak. Uh, the, the, the Bible, the Gospels are filled with the signs that Jesus is the Messiah. His healings, his raising lives from the dead, etc., etc. So Saul is going to see three signs that validate God's word, build up Saul's confidence and trust in God. He really meant, he, Samuel, really meant what he said as he's speaking for God. All right, let's look at these signs. As I mentioned a moment ago, there are three of them. The first sign is in verse 2. When you depart from me today, and this is Samuel speaking, when you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. Now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? So the first sign is, and it's, please note this, it's at a very specific place. It hasn't happened yet. It hasn't occurred yet. But Samuel is saying, when you enter Bethlehem, and when it tells us there at Rachel's tomb, Rachel's tomb, that's where Jacob buried Rachel. Because she died, you might remember, giving birth to Benjamin, the last son, the 12th son of, of Jacob. And they were, they were on sojourn. They were moving. And she had the baby. She died, and so he buried her at Bethlehem. She's the, only, she's the major matriarch, Sarah, Rebecca, and others, that's not buried at Hebron with Abraham and Isaac. Jacob's buried there, but Rachel's buried there. So Samuel says it's a very specific place in Bethlehem where two guys are going to come out and say, Saul, the donkeys are found. Don't worry about it. So that's a, that's a prophetic sign. It hadn't happened yet. Samuel's telling him a very specific place. Two men are going to tell this to you. There's a second sign, and that's in verse 3 and verse 4. Then you shall go from there farther and come to the Oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. As it's clear, at Bethel, this is a worship site, and these are three men that are taking things that will be a part of the sacrifice. Young goats, loaves of bread, wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you should accept from their hand. Now, okay, what does that mean? So you're going to go to Bethel. And you're going to participate in the sacrifice that's there. These two guys are going to give you two loaves of bread. Sacrifice. So again, this is a prophetic, this is a prophetic statement. This hasn't happened yet, but notice how specific it is. The place, the exact number, and what they're going to be carrying. Three men carrying three very specific things. And then to add to that, they're going to give you two loaves of bread. This isn't because Saul was hungry. This is so that he, can offer part of that bread. It's uh, it's part of the uh, the whole loaf offering. It's in Leviticus. I'm, I don't want to get into that particularly, but it's just very some very specific things. 
And when Saul sees them, again, it's a sign. The third sign is much more complex. And it starts with verse 5 and continues through verse 6 and really the consequence of it into 7, verse 7 and 8. The third one occurs at this place where there's a sacrifice and that you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, which is, that's Hebrew for the hill of God. I don't know why the ESV did that, but they just gave you the Hebrew. In other words, the place where the sacrifice is going to occur. That's what that means, the hell of God, where the sacrifice is going to occur. Where there's a garrison of the Philistines. It's just that area had been reconquered from the Philistines. There's an old garrison there. Again, being very, very specific. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, lyre before them. Okay, these are these are prophets. Now remember, um, prophet normally in the Old Testament, unless it's someone like Jeremiah, Isaiah, whatever, normally is someone who's proclaiming God's word, the proclamation of God's word. That, that those who are speaking for God, those who are proclaiming uh, the proclamations, the, the the oracles of God. So they're coming down from the high place. And they've been worshiping. They have the instruments of worship, which reminds us that in Israeli worship in the ancient world, there was a lot of music, a lot of instruments. That's all it's telling us. Here, verse 6 is the most important verse. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, let's take that apart. Okay, first sign, you're going to see a couple of guys at Rachel's tomb are going to tell you the donkey's been found. Third, second sign, three men, each carrying specific things, are going to be part of the sacrifice. They're going to give you to you're heading toward Bethel, the hill of God. Third, a bunch of prophets are going to be coming down from the hill, prophesying. They have been singing and worshiping. And at that moment, the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. Now, I'm pretty certain all of your translations have spirit capitalized. That's the Holy Spirit. And it's a reminder of something for us. The function and work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was different than the function and the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. In other words, after the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. After the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, The Holy Spirit, we put our faith in Christ, takes up residence in us. He is the sign of the new covenant. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and he gifts us for service. And he enables and empowers us to be able to walk in loving obedience with the Lord Jesus. That's not the function and work of the Holy Spirit before the cross. The function and work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is come upon specific people and gift them for service. And so you will read, and that's what we're reading right now, the Holy Spirit comes upon Saul to enable, empower, and gift him to be the king. And Samuel is telling him that's the third and final sign, and that would be a rather formidable, powerful sign, but it's saying something that's extremely important because 
And we're, I'm going to fast forward to chapter 15, so five more chapters. But in chapter 15, we're going to read that Saul disobeyed a whole series of disobedient things, but he disobeyed something very specific God wants him to do. And Samuel says, the spirit of the Lord departs from you. God is taking the rule of king from you and giving it to a man after his own heart, which we will learn is David. And then that that important next section in first, uh, chapter 15, the spirit of the Lord comes upon David. And it's also fascinating, if I can really emphasize what the point I'm making. In Psalm 51, when David prays that penitential psalm after he confesses his sin about Bathsheba, Uriah and all, that's the, he says, Lord, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Because he has in mind what happened to Saul. So here's when the Holy Spirit gifts and empowers Saul for service. And it's that third and final sign from the Lord, as Samuel is speaking to him, from the Lord confirming what God wants you to do. But it's not done. He, he's not done. Look at verse 8. <clears throat> now, when these, I'm in verse 7, excuse me. Now, when these signs meet you, now, the three we just went over, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. So I want you to connect two thoughts here. It's at the end of verse 7 and the thought that is part of verse, uh, end of verse 6 and the part that's in verse 7. At the end of verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. You will prophesy with them. You will proclaim the word of the God and will be turned into another man. What does that mean, turned into another man? Does he become another human being? Does he become someone else? No. He's no longer the son of Kish of the tribe of Benjamin. He's no longer someone who hunts for lost donkeys. He's the king. And the spirit of Yahweh, that's literally the language there. The spirit of Yahweh has rushed upon you has enabled and empowered you. Saul, you're a very different man now. Different stewardship responsibilities, different power, a different calling. And with that goes, verse 7, the promise, God is with you. And that that little phrase, God is with you, it's actually a clause, it is all over the Bible with key individuals. When you go back to the the last chapters of Genesis when the focus is on Joseph. And you look at how many times does it say, and the Lord was with Joseph, and the Lord was with Joseph. It says that over and over and over again. It says it says that of David numerous times. But here, so Saul has seen three confirming signs. He's participated in a prophetic worship of God, and he's now gifted, empowered, if you will, but really a stronger word, He's empowered to do what God is calling him to do. He's a different man. He started the day as a hunter of donkeys. He ends the day the anointed king, empowered by God's spirit. Got it? Okay. Do we have one question? Oh, sure, absolutely. Well, when it says, 
do whatever your hand finds you to do. So the hand's referring to Samuel. Here's the hand. There it says, one of these signs, <laughs> whatever your hand finds you to do. That would be Saul's. Yeah, Saul's hand. And it's a metaphor, it's a figure of speech. Whatever you are supposed to do, remember truth. God's with you. Whatever your hands are about to do as the new king, remember a truth. God is with you. So, I mean, that's a good question to, to raise and clarify. Now, he's not done. He, Samuel, is not done with what he wants to say. One more point, and it's in verse a piece of revelation from God. Then go down before me to Gilgal, before me, Samuel, I'm going to head down to Gilgal. And behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings, to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Now, two things here are really important. Gilgal, I don't know if you remember that. Gilgal is just, uh, just you're, you're, when the Israelites crossed the Jordan River under Joshua and entered the Promised Land, their first camp was at Gilgal. Before they took Jericho and all the other things that are counted in the book of Joshua, Gilgal was the main camp. Gilgal's kind of like a sacred place in Israel. It's where it all began. And it, it became very, it was kind of almost like a Valley Forge, Washington Monumental, all those really special places in our history that relate to very, very great heroic events and so on in our history. Gilgal was that. So Sammy says, go down to Gilgal. I'll be down with you in seven days. So you wait. Now, that's going to be really important because we're going to, we'll see this question as we'll get to it later on. Is Saul going to wait? But we'll get to that later. So it's very, very specific. You go ahead of me down to Gilgal, that sacred place. Joshua and the children of Israel started the conquest against the Canaanites. Entering the promised land, go down there, that sacred place. And I'm coming, but I'm going to offer the burnt offerings. I'm going to offer the peace offerings. But you wait. What's he saying? Saul, do not act independent of me. Yes, God wants you to be the king, and God's promised to be with you. But don't act independent of me yet. So you go down to Gilgal, that sacred place. I'm going to come, we're going to offer, in the name of Israel, the people of Israel, we're going to offer burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. Did you wait? Okay. Now, those first nine, eight verses, which we've spent almost a half hour on, actually, are extremely important at the beginning of Saul's role as king. God has confirmed this role he's supposed to have with three very specific signs, and we tried to take a good amount of time going through those. With a very specific instruction, go down to that heroic place and wait. Don't act independent of me. That is the test of Saul's patience, Saul's faith, and trust in God and his servants. Will Saul act independent? We'll see. One other fact starts, it's a paragraph that starts with verse 9 through 13. It's how people respond to the new Saul. 
When he turned his back to leave Samuel, that he would be Saul, turned his back to leave Samuel, head down to Gilgal, God gave him another heart. That takes us back to turn him into another man, end of verse 6. God is with you, end of verse 7. Gave him another heart. Now, as you know, the word heart in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, is a figure of speech. It's a metaphor. It's not that organ that pumps the blood through our body. It's the center of our will. It's the center of our spiritual will. And so what that means is that God now gives him the, gives him the enabling power to obey him. That's part of the Holy Spirit. So this is a remarkable transformation of Saul. Let's put it another way. Everything Saul has to be king has been given to him. Every resource, every spiritual resource that he needs to be the king, God has given to him. But it requires Saul to walk in obedience with the Lord, doesn't it? He can't act independently of God. He can't do what he wants to do. He is God's prince whom God has, has commissioned, anointed, and whom God has empowered. And in addition, he's given him that capacity to obey. He's changed his heart, the center of his will. But he still, he saw, still must walk in obedience with the Lord. He must do what the Lord wants him to do. And that's going to be the primary character flaw of Saul. Saul is not a man of faith. My argument from now until chapter 15 is that Saul is a man of fear, not of faith. And you're going to see the evidence of this as we go through this story, this narrative of Saul. It's a tragic, tragic story. Because we read when he was introduced to us, handsome, he was tall, he looked like a leader. He's gifted now and anointed and empowered, even to the extent that God changes his heart. Will he walk with his God? Because remember what Deuteronomy 17 said, what the king is supposed to do. Will Saul do that? Now, and all these signs came to pass that day. So everything Samuel said would happen has happened. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets. Now, okay, let me stop there. Gibeah is Saul's hometown. And so before he heads down to Gilgal, he stops at Gibeah. He's going to head over to Gilgal, which is basically due east. So he stops at Gibeah, his hometown. <coughs> now, these are the people that knew him. These are the they're going to be guys that he's going to see he play baseball with. These are, going to, these are going to be guys that he went to school with. I'm making that up, but you know what I mean. These are families and people that knew him. Behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. This isn't the previous. This is in addition. He's headed to Gilgal, stopping at home. And then all who knew him previously saw him. He prophesied with the prophets. The people said to one another, what's come over the son of Kish? Is Saul among the prophets? There are two rhetorical questions 
But their rhetorical question of astonishment. Why? Because these are the people's hometown. They knew him. And they're saying, what, what happened to Saul? Which indicates they never saw any particular evidence of significant spirituality in Saul's life. They never saw any particular leadership qualities. All of a sudden, they're seeing this transformed guy. What's happened to Saul? And a man of the place answered, who is their father? Now, that's an interesting question, but it doesn't mean biological. It's plural, their father, it's the other prophets. It's the question this, who's the leader of the prophets? Because in, there were schools of prophets. Elijah and Elisha were part of those schools of the prophets that we'll see when we get to the to the reign of King Ahab. But the, the guy in Gibeah, his Saul, Saul's hometown, is saying, well, where's the leader of all these guys? It's, it's, a, it's a question of almost, he's incredulous. Saul's among them? Where's the leader? You know, it's like, just a minute, if Saul's, who's the leader of this band of guys? Who's the head of these prophets? So it became a proverb, is Saul among the prophets? But about that matter, the kingdom which Saul has spoken, he did not tell, uh, when he would finish prophesying, he came to the high place. All right, so you, you have all of this response and detail about the fulfillment of the signs. Then you have his hometown responding with astonishment. And this, it's a rhetorical question, is Saul among the prophets? The, the idea of that is, again, is Saul among the prophets? It's, I added the inflection and tone of my voice. But that's what that means. These people of his hometown, is Saul among the prophets? It would be like somebody seeing me if Billy Graham was still alive and it was 1960 and I was just, is Ackman among Graham's people? What's he doing there? He doesn't belong with Billy Graham. I mean, it was just incredulous astonishment. Is Saul among the prophets? Because the rest of his hometown, these are the people he grew up with. And when God does a transformational work, isn't that often the case? People are astonished. What's happened to that guy? He sure is a lot different than when I knew him as a teenager or whatever. So everything God had promised, everything God had declared has come true. Saul, at least as far as we know, Saul has everything he needs to be the king. The key question is, will he walk in obedience with the Lord? Will he be the man of faith that God wants the king to be? Will he be the shepherd king of Israel who leads his people? His primary purpose is to neutralize all the enemies. We read that in the purpose statement earlier. But God's given him everything he needs to do. So that's the question. As we leave this section and go now to verse 14, that's the question. Everything that he needs is there. The people of his hometown are astonished. Then he's still presumably at Gibeah. In verse 14, Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, his uncle is Abner. We'll read about him in chapter 14. This is Uncle Abner. He comes and says, where did you go? 
And he, Saul said, to seek the donkeys. And when he saw that they were not to be found, he went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys have been found. But the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Expositors are going crazy with this because the big question is, why didn't he tell his uncle that he is to be the king? Why didn't he tell his uncle everything Samuel said? Because Samuel didn't only say, hey, the donkeys have been found. He told him a lot more than that. So that we don't know. The Bible is absolutely silent on this. But he's at his hometown. Uncle Abner comes up. Tell me, what did Samuel say to you? Presumably, he's having some indication that something happened up there near Bethel. But whatever, he doesn't answer. He doesn't tell him anything. And that it, it, helps, it doesn't help us to understand, to be honest with you, what is going on in Saul's spirit and Saul's mind. Now, granted, what has happened to him for himself is personally astonishing. And trying to process everything that's been said to him and said about him. And the gifting of God's spirit as the spirit rushed upon him and all of that. That his silence to his uncle is a bit troubling and, and, a, and a, bit, a bit unclear. Was he afraid to tell? Did he lack the boldness to tell? I mean, this is a relative. This isn't just a common person in the town. This is his uncle, his father's brother. So his silence, I'll comment on that in in two chapters. There are some things I think that will give us a little hint, but it's coming up. Now, something else happens, and that is in verse 17. There's been the private anointing, which we read about at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 10. Now in chapter uh, verse 17 of chapter 10, we see a public anointing. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. If you go back to chapter 7 of this book, Mizpah had been the center of a previous revival in Israel. It had been led by Samuel. So a little bit like Cane Ridge during the Second Great Awakening in the United States, or a little bit about the Congregational Church at Northampton, Massachusetts, where Jonathan Edwards was pastor during the First Great Awakening, or a little bit like that Methodist Church in Lower Manhattan in the Great Prayer Revival of 1856, you go to a special spiritual place where there was a great revival. And Samuel summons the leadership of Israel to that special place. Now, who's coming? Everybody in Israel? Every member of the 12 tribes? No. It's the tribal leaders, the clan leaders, key family leaders, and the spiritual leaders, presumably the Levites from all the Levitical cities. He summons them to Mizpah, the center of this previous great spiritual revival. And he said to the people of Israel, thus says 
The Lord, the God of Israel. Now, there's that covenant name. Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel. That's God's covenant name. I brought up Israel out of Egypt. I delivered you from the land of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saved you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you've said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. And what they sought him, he could not be found. Now, what has just happened? This is a very traditional way of doing something like this. It's rooted in Old Testament practices. Joshua used that in how he dispersed the land grants to the 12 tribes. The Proverbs tells us that God controls the law. So this is a public affirmation using the system of law to validate that Saul's to be the king. You understand what I just said? So the lot, they take the lot, you know, you know what a lot is. It, it, you might talk about like a, a, a die, a, a die, a piece of a, a dice, each two. You know what that is. No, I'm not saying God's throwing a dice, but it was a way, usually it was broken pieces of pottery with a mark on it. That's what they were called, ostraca. But anyway, so the first, they, they draw the lots, all 12 tribes. The lot that's drawn out by Samuel is Benjamin. And they put all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin together. He picks up the ostrich of the piece of broken pottery with a name on it. What's the name? The Matrites, the clan within Benjamin. Then they put all the families. And he picks up the broken ostrich, Kish. Then he has the sons of Kish. There aren't many. And he pulled out, it's Saul. What's that mean? Saul is to be the king. So Samuel brought all the leadership to Mizpah, that site of great spiritual revival of years earlier. And he takes them through the traditional way of choosing a leader. But God superintends it so that publicly everyone knows God chose Saul. What does the end of verse 21 tell us? They sought him. He could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord. Is there a man still to come? Did we make a mistake? Did I pick up the wrong ostrica, the long, wrong piece of pottery with the name of Did I pick up the wrong one? What does God say? No, he's hiding among the baggage. That's a very interesting statement about Saul. Now, let's review what we studied today. Did Saul know he was going to be king? Of course he did. Did Saul know that God promised to be with him? Sure. Did Saul know that he was empowered, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, to be the king? Yes. Did he know that God would bless him? Yes. So why is he hiding? It's just a fascinating 
It's a fascinating, and really, it's not explained, but it's a fascinating demeanor of this future king. He's not there with dad. He's the son of Kish. He's not with the family. He's hiding in the baggage. And we have to ask this question. Does that evidence profound humility on his part? Which is a good quality. Does that exhibit a significant degree of fear on his part? I know what God said. I know it. Does it or does it exhibit a degree of embarrassment and a degree of shyness? He's so shy. He doesn't like to be around people. So he's hiding in this very public event where they're choosing the king by lot. He knows he's going to be chosen because he knows what God said to him, confirming it with three signs. So rather than standing, okay, Lord, I'm ready to accept this now, he's hiding in the baggage. Humility, shyness, fear, embarrassment. I don't know which one it is. But I think I can say with a degree of certainty, this isn't an encouraging beginning. You don't want to see your future king hiding in the baggage. And so, again, it is this humility, which if it is humility, that, that's a positive character trait. But what we know about Saul, it, we just don't know for sure. But it certainly, at the least, is not a very good beginning. Then they ran and took him in verse 23. They ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. We read about that a couple of chapters ago. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see whom the Lord has chosen? So now it is the public declaration at that center of great previous spiritual revival. The Lord has chosen your king. Here he is. And as the text said, he's taller. He stood out in the crowd. There's none like him among all the people. And then all the people shouted, long live the king. I mean, Charles III was coronated a couple of months ago. That's what the people in Westminster Abbey declared. Did you see that? Where'd that come from? From this. <coughs> this becomes the declaration of acceptance of the people. Long live the king. Now Saul is the king, privately anointed by Samuel, publicly anointed and declared among all the tribal clan leaders, etc., etc., at this great center of spiritual revival, Mizpah. Then there's something else. Then Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it before the Lord. Now, this is like a legal agreement. It's very much filled with symbolism here. Now, when it says the rights and duties of the king, 
Right? So where would he go? Where would he get that? Think Deuteronomy 17. What we studied last week, or I, not last week, or two weeks ago, whenever we, I read it to you, we went through it a little bit. I believe that's the only, that's the only thing you can, that makes sense of it. Samuel took, presumably parchment, took the stylus, and wrote out from the Torah, from Deuteronomy 17, the duties and rights of the king. What's the king to do? The king is not to take foreign wives. The king is not to amass gold and silver. The king is not to, to get horses and chariots from, from Egypt. The king is to immerse himself in God's word, meditate, etc., etc. And then it says, laid it before the Lord. That's the language. That's the language that's used in Exodus and in Deuteronomy of de- depositing something, putting something in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle. So presumably that's what he did. He lays it before the Lord. It's a binding legal agreement. This is what Saul is agreeing to do. This is what you people who just witnessed his coronation, so to speak, are agreeing that he's going to do. This is what you're going to hold him accountable for. This is what God's going to hold him. And it's a legal agreement, binding. And he lays it before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. So also went home to Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? They despised and brought him no present, him meaning Saul no present. But he, Saul, held his peace. He didn't seek revenge. He didn't seek vengeance. He let these, the text says, worthless fellows who are doubting that he should be king. Remember, he's at Gibeah. These are his home folks. So the point now of chapter 10 is all of the affirmation of Saul, God's signs that he gives him, his private anointing, his public anointing, his coronation, his gift in this nice. He's sort of. We have some questions about it. And for you and me, the problem is we know where this is going. We know what's going to happen to Saul. The people didn't actually, neither did Saul. So, is it a good beginning? Well, it certainly is a little bit unsettling, but at the same time, everything he needs to be the king, God's given him. And there's no doubt about it that God's chosen him. That's what the casting of the lots and all that's a public thing. That's how they confirmed that this is what God wanted. So in everybody's eyes and in everybody's conviction, Saul is our king, and that's what God wants. Now, what kind of a king is he going to be? That's what the next couple of chapters are going to be about. All right, now, I, I, I want, we're in good time here. So I wanted to get through chapter 10 in all of its detail, making sure that each one of these little steps we went through carefully and clearly. Everybody with me? Anybody online have questions? Anybody here in the room? Are you with me? This is Saul's ready now in terms of every one of the different facets of, of, of Israel. Is Saul personally ready? Well, we're going to see. And that's what these next couple chapters are about. Okay, I'm not hearing any questions online, and I'm not hearing any questions in the room. So that silence means you either have understood everything we've been talking about, or you have no idea what I've been saying, and you don't even know how to frame a question. But I'm going to assume you're with me. So chapter 11 now begins 
Saul's reign. It begins a series of crises he has to deal with. Now, verse 11, uh, excuse me, chapter 11, verse 1, we're introduced to somebody. We've got to really remind ourselves. And Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. Now, Jabesh Gilead is a town on the east side of the Jordan River. Here's Gibeah, where Saul's hometown is going to be the capital of the monarchy. Gibeah is up here. I mean, Jabesh Gilead is up here. It's across the Jordan River and up. It's in the land grant of Manassas, East Manassas. Nahas the Ammonite. you got to go back to Judges chapter 11. When the judge Jephthah defeated the Ammonites there. So what Nahas the Ammonite is doing is he's getting revenge. I am going to get revenge on what happened about a hundred years earlier to my people at Jabesh Gilead. (coughs) Now the people of Jabesh Gilead are Jews. Remember, two and a half of the tribe said to Moses, when we finish conquering the land, we want our land grants to be on the east side of the Jordan River. Remember that? So these are the guys that settled there after the conquest and all that. These are Israelites, for the most part. Now, the Ammonite, the Ammonites are the descendants of Ammon, one of the, one of the uh, sons of one of the daughters of Lot. That's a long story, but that's where that fits. These are the enemies of Israel. These are the historic enemies of Israel. The Ammonites hate the Israelites, and the Israelites don't particularly like them. So he's getting revenge. And all the men at Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us. Now, when the, the, the verse 1 uses the word besiege Jabesh Gilead, do you know what that means? They're, they're circling the city. This is a walled city. All the major cities in the ancient world had walls around them. So they're laying siege of the city. They're going to starve it out. Nobody can go in. Nobody can out. No food can go in. So, I mean, it's, it's serious. If you, don't have an, if you don't have an internal source of water, you're not going to last that siege. So the people of Jagash Gilead say to Nash, make a treaty with us. Literally, cut a treaty with us. And we'll serve you. We give up. Make a covenant treaty with us. Give us an agreement. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and bring a disgrace on all of this. Now you have to understand, man, the symbolism of this. In the ancient world, and this, there are number of illustrations of this in the Old Testament, but it's also in a lot of extra-biblical things that we found from all civilizations. You conquer an area, you're a king, and you conquer an area, and you make these people subservient to you, you would select a group of men, usually the children of the king that you're conquering, and gather their eyes out public. Nahash is demanding that every, every single Man, have the right eyes gouged out. And, as he says, this will be a public disgrace to all Israel. I have humiliated, 
I brought to bear upon my historic enemies, the Jews, who took this area from me. Not him personally, he was alive, but it was ancestors. I'm getting revenge. And I'm going to show you, because as I told you earlier, you know that two and a half of the tribes asked Moses to settle on the east side of the Jordan River. These are the descendants of those people. This is in Manasseh's land grant. And so Nahash is saying, it's revenge time. Jephthah subdued us when we were making trouble again. Now it's revenge. You must subdue. But the cost of this tree, the price of this tree, the, the, the tangible evidence of this tree, of your subservience to me, is I'm going to gouge out the right eye of every man. The men of Jabesh said to him, I'm continuing verse 3, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there's no one to save us, we'll give ourselves to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of all the people, and all the people wept aloud. This is a crisis. It's amazing that Nahash allowed the Jebusites of Jabesh Gilead, to send these messengers out. They did. Because he, Nahash, wants this to be a signal to all of Israel. This is what I want to do with all of you. I'm going to get my revenge. Verse 8. Excuse me, verse 5. Yeah, probably. It's so horrible and audacious. Why would anybody come? So, verse 5. Where's Saul? Yeah, I'm oh, sorry, Ed. You know they had a king? You know that Saul was the king? It's a really good question. Um, I, it, it would seem reasonable to me in all probability that he did. He, he knew that the political arrangement had changed. So in a way, this could be a test of that, how, how much of a formidable enemy this is going to be, because he knew the one thing. The tribes were very dysfunctional and very disparate. They weren't united at all, and that would always play to the advantage of a person who wants to conquer them. So where's Saul? Is he in a, a special palace that he built at Gibeah? Is he in his house at Gibeah? Verse 5 says, Now Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. <laughs> now, I, I'm not de denigrating him at all because, you know, it wasn't quite clear what the king was going to do and so on. So he's doing what is fairly normal. He's, he's farming his dad's land because his father's still alive. So he's farming his dad's land. He's with the oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they're weeping? So they told him the news of the man of Jabesh. Verse 6, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Good response. He took a yoke of oxen, cut them into pieces, sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people. They came out as one man. What does that mean, as one man? Unified. So, what Saul has done here is a very positive calling the ten, excuse me, the eleven and a half tribes, because some of the Levites aren't ready to fight, but the tribes to fight against Nahash the Ammonite, or another way of putting it, to defend Jabesh Gilead. 
Now, it, it's kind of gruesome to imagine cutting up an oxen into pieces and sending the piece to all the tribal leaders. But that, again, in the ancient Near Eastern world, that is often how a king called his servants to bow. So it's gruesome. It's hard to imagine. But he got the attention of everybody because if you don't come and support this effort to liberate Jabesh Gilead, may this happen to you. Now, if you want to find out what happens, you've got to come back next week. The positive evidence of leadership by Saul. We'll see what happens. All right? Saul is a complicated figure. But he, he started in his role. Are you with me? All right. I'm going to pray. This is a very silent group today. I kept wondering whether you're still with me. And on the line, nobody's asking questions. So I'm going to pray, and I'll let you go in all your silence. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to us. You promised Saul that you would be with him, each one of us, regardless of who we are, what our position is, or anything, is that promise. Jesus said, I will be with you to the end. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That's a great promise, and it's something that is important to each one of us. We walk with you, Lord. That's that wonderful phrase used in the New Testament. We walk with you in love and obedience. We enjoy the fellowship and communion with you, all because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So help us to, in a walk of loving obedience, to be men of faith, men who are, who are committed to representing you well in this dark world, to be the salt and light you're calling us to be, to be good fathers, good grandfathers, good husbands, uh, if our wives are still, still with us, to be the men you're calling us to be. So enable these guys here in the room as well as those online to be the men of God you're calling to be. You've strengthened, empowered, gifted each one of us to be what you want us to be. May we walk faithfully with you in your son's name. We pray. Amen. See you next week.